Hi, this is Anishka Fernandopoli. I hope this talk supports you in your practice. If you'd like to support my teaching, you can use the donate button under my picture on dharmaseed.org or go to my website, anushkaf.org, A-N-U-S-H-K-A-F.org, and click on donate. Thanks. I appreciate your support. So welcome to the last evening of your retreat. As some of you are aware, I'm sure. <laughs> so like you, I've been enjoying uh, getting to hear Dharma talks every night. <clears throat> and I've grown quite comfortable in my seat on the side there. <laughs> but it turns out I'm actually teaching the retreat. So I uh, also have to take my turn here. Um, but I appreciate, as um, Howie had referred to, being able to hear all of my colleagues giving, uh, sharing the Dharma and getting to see the different ways in which it flowers through each of them. And it actually reminded me of a different activity which I enjoy very much, which is uh, karaoke. <laughs> and uh, I'll tell you why, <clears throat> which is that um, you know, I particularly enjoy going to, um, I live in San Francisco, and there's a karaoke establishment near my house, which is a queer karaoke bar, and uh, I like to hear people singing there because everyone is singing their own song in their own way, you know. It's just that you see the uniqueness of each person's, the choice of their song and how they sing it, and just putting their heart into it, and it actually doesn't even matter if someone is a really good singer or not. For me, uh, it feels like if that person is doing it really sincerely, it's just such a beautiful thing uh, to get to see. So uh, hopefully my colleagues will take that as a compliment that I'm comparing it to uh, <laughs> karaoke. Uh, yes, okay. So I thought I'd share a bit with you um, tonight about what I think we've been doing here during this time, and also some thoughts about how this might translate or transfer as you go back into your other life, your non-retreat life as I'm sure that's on some of your minds. So here we've been having this great opportunity to practice the Dharma. So practice paying attention, being mindful, and trying to become aware of the way things are. And for me, that's one of the very compelling um, translations of Dhamma, is just the way things are. So it's kind of like nature, you know, understanding the way things are. Partly because for me, it's then really clear that all of us have the opportunity to actually see that. So um, Noah had told the story of the Buddha's uh, enlightenment, his awakening, and he had his own path, his own questions that he followed, and then he was able to see through into the way things are. So what he saw is actually something that is not something he made up. It's not like an abstract philosophy, uh, but it actually is about the nature of existence, the nature of our mind the way that we relate to how things arise and how that will lead towards happiness or towards suffering. So you can see that in that the instructions that we've been giving are actually kind of like his recipe for helping us all to be able to discover this ourselves. And it's a recipe that's come down 2,600 years. So that also is quite inspiring because fundamentally, the human mind has not really changed in all that time. Yeah. I'm interested in the uh, studies that come out now. You know, Wes had referred to them, and a couple, and Trudy also about um, uh, you know science kind of meeting uh, mindfulness and uh, exploring that, and um, you know proving things like that it works and that your brain can change and um, things like that. And it strikes me sometimes as kind of like the dominant, science is kind of like the dominant uh, religion or belief system in some ways in our culture, right? So like germ theory or, you know, by and large people believe this stuff. So now it's kind of trying to interface with this ancient thing. Uh, and a lot of the studies um, have brought out different aspects of this, different angles, but also a lot of them are things that the Buddha really talked about uh, 2,600 years ago uh, with a lot of clarity too. So what are the things that he described uh, as what he saw? And what are some of the, the dimensions of this recipe for us? 
So one aspect that I wanted to highlight for you tonight is the aspect about the three characteristics. So he talked about some characteristics of what arises for us in our experience, and particular dimensions that we can pay attention that can help us to be free. So we have alluded to this a lot during the retreat, and people have described this in the instructions also. So we could say that the first one, which actually drove him on his uh, quest, his own personal question that he held, was about suffering, was about dukkha. So it was about trying to understand, like, what's it all about? You know? So what is this human life about if people get old, or if they get sick, or if they die? So dukkha is translated differently as uh, strain, stress, unsatisfactoriness, uh, difficulty. And it kind of ranges all the way from sickness, old age, and death to kind of a low-grade dissatisfaction that can run through a lot of our existence. So one of the the ancient, uh, the old uh, metaphors for this is like a potter's wheel that's going around, but it's not completely smooth. So as it's turning, there's like one piece of it that's a little bit off. So it's like like that. So a modern equivalent, I think, is like if you go to a cafe and you sit at a table and uh, the four legs are not completely on the ground. (laughs) So you have your cup of tea or something there and then it keeps on shifting a little during your whole meal or during your conversation. It's not a huge thing, you know, but still it's like a low-grade thing that's always there. And sometimes you don't even notice what it is that's annoying you until later, right? And then you try and put napkins and different things <laughs> under, right, to fix it. So, so this is actually a characteristic of human life. So once you take birth uh, from the time you come out, shrieking and screaming from the womb, there is some aspect of this going on. And there are times when you can uh, gloss over this. So uh, I feel like particular times if you've been um, healthy, relatively healthy, or if you're, uh, you're relatively young, uh, or if you uh, have other sort of advantages. But pretty soon, if you actually pay attention, this reveals itself quite clearly. So this week, uh, being in the desert, uh, you probably have noticed this. So I, t- I took a glance into my um, trash can as I was leaving uh, my room, and I saw that like, most of the things in the trash can actually had to do with trying to keep my body happy during this week in the desert. So uh, you know, sometimes I wear contact lenses, and it's really dry here. So those of you who have uh, contact lenses know like, you have to constantly be putting eye drops to keep it like, uh, lubricated. Right? So the contact lens drops things. Then uh, lotion, right? So skin gets really dry, so you have to put lotion on. Right? Then sunscreen, too. So you want to put sunscreen on so you don't get burned. Uh, you know, water bottles, you know, on and on and on, right? So there's a lot of stuff that it takes to actually just keep yourself reasonably happy here in the desert. Right? Like the desert conditions are not uh, easy ones for us as animals. So here's a listing that the Buddha gave of this uh, dukkha too. So birth is dukkha, aging is dukkha. Death is dukkha. Sorrow, lamentation, pain, grief, and despair are dukkha. Association with the unloved is dukkha. Separation from what you love is dukkha. Not getting, getting what is wanted is dukkha. In fact, then he, what he says is the five clinging aggregates are dukkha. So our life arises in this way, and as we cling to things, that too is dukkha. And that happens a lot, lot of the time. So a second characteristic, you could say, is uh, anicca, or impermanence. So things change. And this also uh, is difficult for us. So everything in your body is constantly changing. Everything in the environment is constantly changing. Consider how much the weather has changed this week. And when we got here, in the beginning it was really hot. And actually, I spoke to some friends who were uh, going to come uh, this coming week to teach uh, a different retreat. And 
I said, oh, it's, yeah, it's really hot here now. You know, you should bring really clothes for be being really hot, right? And then I had another communication with them a couple days later, right? They're wearing like two sweatshirts and it's <laughs> windy and it's, you know. And so then I communicated with them. I said, well, actually, it's really cold now. <laughs> you should also bring clothes for it being really cold. So, you know, it's like this, like we don't know, you know. It just changes and it's not in our control. You have some, you try and get some grasp on it, you try and look at the weather report and things like that. But really, it's like, it just comes like that, you know. And that's true of so many things in our existence. You know, this factor of change is going on. Sometimes we know that, and sometimes we don't. Much of the time, we actually don't know it, and we're trying to look for satisfaction in things or experiences or people uh, in some way as if they were permanent, but actually they're not. So here's where we come back around to dukkha again, right? Because we're trying to seek some kind of stability, some kind of place of rest, you know? There is this sense of like unrest or that, you know, that, that thing's being off. And so we long for something that we can actually take refuge in. We long for something that we can find safety in. So depending on your own temperament, this could be something different. So for some people, it's about, I need to find the perfect relationship, right? Like that will sustain me. That will be the place where I'll be satisfied. Or I need to make a certain amount of money. Or I need to have a certain kind of job. I want to have a certain kind of success. Sometimes it's, I want to have a certain house, right? Or a car. Now, there's nothing wrong with actually achieving any of these things, and they can certainly bring us some kind of happiness in our life. But it's when we actually put our complete faith in these that we're in trouble. If we can just enjoy them for what they are in the moment that they are, but then allow them to change as they change, then we'll be able to move with it without the added pain and suffering. So this comes then to the third one, which is about not-self, so the non-solidity of everything, which is also related to the fact that everything is interconnected. So several people have referred to this in the Dharma talks, this co-arising of things. So both there's a co-arising of all things externally, but also for ourselves. So as you've been sitting here, sitting after sitting, after sitting, after sitting, after sitting, you notice that there's actually nothing that stays the same as you're sitting here. So whether or not you were explicitly holding the question of, like, who am I? You know, where's the me in this? That which you're observing, the object of your observation, continues to change. Right? So the breath continued to change. Your emotions continue to change. Your thoughts continue to change. The sensations of your body continue to change. So there is no thing, per se, that you could find out that was like there as a solid identity of myself. There's ideas that arise, but then those ideas go, too. So then that brings us back around again to the dukkha. So these three characteristics are helpful for us to reflect on as we pay attention to our experience, both here on retreat, and then also actually as we go out into the world. So these are actually dimensions that can help us in our quest for freedom, for happiness. They're like reminders about this. So, for example, uh, dukkha, like this sense of dis-ease, this sense of unrest, this sense of suffering. When you notice this coming up in your life, if you can relate to it, like actually, oh, look, this is dukkha, like name what it is, it can kind of be like your alarm clock bell. You know? So it's telling you to wake up, it's telling you to pay attention. So many times this is calling your attention to like, oh, what's going on here? What is my relationship to this experience that's arising? Is there something that I'm clinging to? Many times there's something that we have actually put our faith in. You know, we've actually 
uh, banked on, that we don't know we've banked on until it actually changes. So I'll give you an example of this. Um, So I live in an apartment uh, in San Francisco, and uh, I've lived there for about eight years. And I actually really like my apartment. And it's probably the longest I've lived somewhere since the home I grew up in. So I'm pretty comfortable there and on and on like that. And there was some uh, problem that happened in the porch outside. So my neighbors and I got together and decided, okay, we have to rip this up and see what it is. And then it turns out there's some like rotting wood in the porch. So, okay, that's, that's the problem. That's too bad. We'll deal with it. So we're dealing with it, and then it sort of turned out that the rotting wood went up actually into the walls also of my apartment. Right? So I found this out when uh, I was in there and heard this heavy banging on the walls of the apartment, which were the people ripping out the walls as they discovered the uh, rot going up in the wood. So I remember that there's this, um, there's this Zen uh, poem about uh, something like this. So it's like, since my house burned down, I have a better view of the rising moon. <laughs> so was, I remember that haiku, actually. It's a very good uh, poem, but I did not feel that at the moment. <laughs> I felt alarm about the banging going on in my walls. <laughs> and I went outside to find out what's going on and um, you know, saw them ripping it out. And uh, I noticed myself uh, being alarmed about this, you know in this way that uh, is able to see like, oh yeah, this is, this is dukkha. Like, look at this. You know? Like, there's a way in which I have actually uh, put my faith in the stability of this house. You know? And uh, the fact that it's not stable is disturbing me. You know? I can see this, right? So it's a, it's a, these are these wake-up calls. Like, oh, look where I've put my faith. And I, I didn't even know that before. You know, I didn't know. I, I would probably say like, oh, I like my apartment. But I wouldn't have said I was that invested in that way. Right? And these things happen on a deeper than intellectual level. Right? So factually speaking, of course, I could say, like, oh, I know it's just a thing, and you know, I've lived in many different apartments. And, you know. In fact, I actually recently had seen um, some film that um, probably some of you also saw from the uh, tsunami that happened in Japan. And it was of the waters rising in this area. And you see the water rising, and first you see these cars and trucks kind of bobbing around. Right? And it's, it's kind of alarming, but it's like, wow, they're just like toys in a bathtub. Like, look at the, you know, these things that we have. They're like so easily gone. And then the water keeps rising, and then the buildings start to move. You, know? you see the buildings being swept away. And I noticed in myself also this sense of like, wow, the building's being swept away. Of surprise, like, oh, I thought buildings were solid, right? Even though I know that they're not. So notice in yourself, like, get interested in those places where you get taken aback, you know? Like, that's dukkha. There's a sign of some, uh, some clinging there, some investment, some not seeing the way things are. Right? So that doesn't mean that it's just like, oh, okay, great, my walls are falling down, right? So, you know, then I went out there and talked to them and tried to figure out what to do about it. And, you know, you have to deal with things as you deal with them. But it's sort of this added thing of like, oh, no, that was supposed to be solid and it's not. That's the added suffering, you know, that believing things to be solid when they're not, which is the suffering that we can relieve ourselves from. So you probably can think about different experiences you've had on this retreat where that was true, too. So times that something disappointed you. Right? Times when you realized that uh, you wanted something to happen and it didn't. Or th- times when something happened and you didn't want it to. Right? So it's helpful to notice that. You know? Like usually our reaction is like, oh no, it's out there and that thing needs to change. Right? So one of the helpful things is with our practice is we can cast ourselves back to ourselves. Right? So you know, say when you point out at something else, like that needs to change. That thing's not like how I want it. You know, the three fingers are pointing back at you. Right? <laughs> so take that as your sign. Like, oh, what's going on inside? Right? Like, what's going on inside? What's my relationship to this? How's this playing out? Right? 
So originally I wanted to talk to you um, some about this transition to your life at home. And um, one of the aspects is being able to pay attention in a different way than you are here. So I know you had a little um, visit to the world of speech and uh, like interpersonal relationships this afternoon. Uh, and probably some of you discovered that it feels different right, than being in silence. Yeah. And maybe also a little bit alarming how much energy there was or how it felt like, oh, I'm not actually able to pay attention to my experience in the same way. Yeah. So that's true. <laughs> so the first thing is actually to find your, when you find yourself uh, having those, that sense of that, as you shift away from the retreat, yeah, things are changing. So the conditions are changing and it won't feel the same. So unless you actually live full-time in a retreat center, likely it won't feel the same, right? So here again is an opportunity. If you're kind of clinging to the way it was before, then you're going to feel more suffering, right? More dukkha. If you're able to just be with it, be with things as they're changing, right? Then you're going to find it somewhat more interesting and have some ease with it, right? And as I'm saying this too, it's like it's hard, you know? Like we're constantly coming up against this... uh, ways in which we're disappointed, ways in which we want something to happen some way. So just having like a lot of compassion for yourself as you meet these. So even as the retreat's changing, you know, you might find yourself kind of sad about things that were like not even such big deal things. So maybe someone who is sitting next to you like isn't sitting next to you anymore. Right? And you have this sense of like loss about that. Right? Yeah. And like allow yourself to feel that. Like allow yourself to be with the poignancy of that. You know, a voice may come in and say, like, it's not a big deal. I didn't even talk to that guy. I don't know who he was, right? Uh, It doesn't matter. You know, let yourself feel that, right? Let yourself feel that connection. So as things shift, partly what we're shifting from is the instruction to pay attention primarily to our quote-unquote internal experience, uh, to actually being able to pay attention both internally and externally in the world. So this is actually uh, also some of the classical instructions for practitioners. And Larry had alluded to this uh, Satipatthana Sutta, the Sutta of teaching the kind of mindfulness practice that we did. So in the Satipatthana Sutta, there's a, a part that's like a refrain to it in which the Buddha is saying about paying attention and paying attention to the different dimensions And, for example, he's talking about paying attention to the body. And uh, in this one paragraph, he's talking about paying attention in full awareness when going forward, returning, when looking ahead, when looking away, when wearing your your robes or clothes, carrying your clothes and bowl, acting in full awareness when eating, drinking, consuming food and tasting, when defecating and urinating, when walking, standing, sitting, falling asleep, waking up, talking, keeping silent. So paying attention to the body. And then the refrain that comes after all of these is about, in this way, the practitioner abides contemplating the body as the body, internally, externally, and both internally and externally. So internally and externally. So, so far in this kind of practice, we've been mostly focusing on the quote-unquote internal experience. And now as you start to move into the world, you're going to have to focus both internally and externally. And I encourage you to make that all part of your practice. So there's a kind of movement between the two, as it seems like they're a dichotomy. Uh, They can all be part of your practice. So everything can be part of that. Some pointers on that as we're going forward. So one is going back actually full circle to the first night of the retreat. It seems so long ago. Doesn't it seem long ago? So in the beginning of the retreat, we did an opening uh, evening in which we took the precepts and then we did the refuges. Do you remember this? Yeah. And then we didn't talk about them so much, uh, you know, during the rest of the time, although they were still there. So I actually want to come back to them now as we're starting to transition out to about both of these aspects, which are really helpful in practice.
So the precepts are a really helpful area to pay attention to as you move out in the world and move into the world of interaction. And I think they're actually kind of like an undervalued dimension of um, Buddhist practice uh, in the way that Buddhism has come to the United States so far. And I think it's partly because people have kind of a reaction to it uh, who might have grown up in some religious tradition in which someone is trying to tell you what to do, right? Like, do this and don't do this. And if you do this wrong, like, this big power is going to, like, zap you about it, right? <laughs> so the spirit of this is very different with the precepts. So I want to start out with that. So the spirit of this is, like, these are actually trainings. You know, these are actually trainings, areas to pay attention to if you are someone who is on the path of trying to be happy, trying to be free. Right? So it's really kind of like if, you're, if you were training as an athlete, if you were like, I want to be a marathoner, then you would figure out like, what are the things that are conducive to being able to run well and what are the things that will be, make it harder for me. So you might pay attention to your diet. You might pay attention to your sleep. You might pay attention to how much you run. You might pay attention to your shoes, right? Like all these different things, stretching. So like this, if you're in the path towards freedom, towards happiness, trying to understand the causes of suffering. The precepts are actually these helpful guideposts about these particular areas of human activity in which it's helpful to pay attention to. And they're just trainings. So just like if you were trying to run a marathon and say one day you woke up and you decided you would eat like half a box of donuts instead of your official nutritional plan, right? And then you would run that day and then you would see how it felt, right? And, you know, maybe you'd be like, oh, I kind of was really going for the first mile, but then I petered out, right, as the sugar crash came in. Right? So similar with the precepts. So you pay attention to these dimensions of relationship and of activity and then see what happens in them, right? So see both when you are in accordance, alignment with the precept, and see when you're not, right? Like, how does that, how does that play out internally, externally? So both of those, those dimensions. So just to remind you of them, in case it seems so long ago that you've forgotten. The first one is, uh, I undertake the precept to refrain from destroying living creatures, from killing. So this precept is around paying attention to our actions in regards to other living creatures, humans and animals. And someone asked a question today about, um, you know, it seems like I noticed the animals here are starting to feel less scared. And is that really, could that be true or am I just imagining that? Right? I also have observed that actually this week too. Uh, now in some retreat centers, uh, like some of you have been to Spirit Rock or uh, at uh, Insight Meditation Society on the East Coast, Buddhist meditation centers where that's kind of the 365 days a, a year sort of uh, deal is that people don't harm animals. And you'll notice that the animals actually interact very differently with the humans. You know? Like the deer in those places will just be there like eating their grass, kind of doing their thing. And you, know, you can walk by them, they might look up, but they're basically not that scared of you. you know? And there's turkeys or you know, other different animals, birds, and they kind of do their thing, right? They're, they're doing their thing, but they're not actually thinking you're going to harm them because they're used to this. So I feel like that happens here. So as a community of 150 people who have taken these precepts, we actually were holding to this. And you know, I noticed when I first came here, like, I think there's many different things that happen in this center, like Egyptian ecstatic music concerts and you know, <laughs> various things in which they may or may not be holding the precepts per se. Right? Um, <laughs> So I feel like the animals, like they don't, you know, it's not necessarily like the full-time thing going on here in the center. But I feel like I, it's a dimension of our practice, right? And that people were moving around here gently. You know, even though we weren't talking to each other, uh, you know, animals can feel that. Right? Like you can't, you, can't, uh, you can't fool animals that much. You know, they have a sense of when there's gentleness and when there's aggression coming from you. So Buddha even talks about this um, regarding the, the precepts. So here's, for example, with the first precept. A noble practitioner gives up the destruction of life and abstains from it. 
By abstaining from the destruction of life, the noble disciple gives to immeasurable beings freedom from fear, hostility, and oppression. By giving to immeasurable beings freedom from fear, hostility, and oppression, she herself will enjoy immeasurable freedom from fear, hostility, and oppression. So it's beautiful, right? By holding to this precept, you give that gift to the others, but at the same time, you actually enjoy that in yourself, too. It's said this, like this about metta, too. You know, and metta is like the opposite of the kind of aggression and hatred that might come with the impulse to destroy life. So with metta, it's considered like you're giving the greatest gift to others when they have the sense that they can actually relax in your presence. You know, they can trust you, like you're not going to harm them. So it's a beautiful thing, right? Like what a gift you can give people. That they know like you're not going to yell at them, uh, you're not going to be mean to them, you're not going to beat them. And you can consider yourself, reflect on different people in your life or different relationships you've had. And like how that is when you've been with someone or known someone who's very gentle, who you feel like, oh yeah, I can trust them. Like this person is kind. This person is basically not going to harm me. And then how you feel when you've been in relationship with people who you have seen hurting you or someone else. Who you have seen like losing their temper, or exhibiting physical violence. So we're actually kind of sensitive creatures as humans. You know, even one time that you see that, uh, you know, gives you this sense like, oh, I got to watch out around this person. Right? I just got to pay attention. I got to be on guard. Right? So. I also experienced this in um, I was doing my my individual meetings out on the porch, and uh, the back of my place, and um, many people who came to meet with me, uh, had some like animal encounter during our interviews. Right? So uh, at one point this, uh, with one person, uh, this lo- very large lizard came out and he just walked very slowly in between the two of us. You know, <laughs> We're having a conversation, he walked in between the two of us, then he made like a right turn and just went about his business. And, uh, uh, and it's definitely not because I have a special fondness for reptiles that this lizard came. You know? <laughs> I was surprised actually that he came like that. But he was just fine. He was just like doing his thing, you know. Then also in my porch, there's some little holes in which um, some squirrels live. And uh, there's actually this family of squirrels. So there are these four baby squirrels that um, live there. And just in the last couple of days, they've begun poking their heads out and uh, like checking out the world. And um, they start to climb around and like fall off things. And, you know, they're very cute. But... Uh, uh, they also don't seem that afraid, you know. Uh, so I felt uh, positive about, positively about that, that we've created an atmosphere, you know, here in which the animals can start to relax, too. So the second precept is around, undertake the precept to refrain from taking that which is not freely given. So if the root of the first precept is around paying attention to hatred or cruelty as it comes up in our heart. The root of this one is paying attention to greed right, or acquisitiveness as that comes up for us. So wanting something, the wanting mind, and particularly paying attention as we actually act that out. So here again, we give each other the gift of safety. So in a community in which you feel like, oh, I could leave my sweatshirt on this chair and someone's not going to steal it. It's a nice thing. It helps you to feel much more relaxed, right? I know some of us came from the city, and at first, you're probably not used to this, like, no locks on things, right? Uh, it makes you a little, a little uneasy at first, right? And then hopefully you're able to sort of ease into that a little bit, you know, start to relax a little bit, and then it's actually quite nice. Right? And then the positive side of that is that you can start to cultivate uh, generosity, Kindness. So just like in the first precept, you know, metta is like the positive uh, opposite of that. Here you can start to uh, practice renunciation, letting go of what you don't need, uh, as well as generosity. So third precept is basically the non-harming precept as applied to 
sexual energy, sexuality. I undertake the precept to refrain from sexual misconduct or harm with my sexual energy, sexual activity. So as you, uh, you know, re-enter the world, this becomes, again, much more of an uh, active kind of thing. So how do we relate to other people uh, in terms of our sexuality? There are, of course, like more overt uh, examples of this, of forcing someone, of rape, or uh, of child abuse, etc. But there's also more subtle ones, too. You know, even just how we relate to people in the world using our sexual energy. And how we relate to ourselves, too. Right? So as Noah was saying, you know, that where are these animals? We're like these animals here. So same as the rabbits and the you know, lizards and the owls. Uh, and so this is like a natural part of our animal life, that there's sexual energy that moves through us. So it's not like we have to repress it or feel like it's bad, but we do have to pay attention to how it is that it's manifesting, right? Uh, how it is that it's manifesting as we relate to others and as we relate to ourselves. So fourth precept, uh, your practice has started already on this one here. I undertake the precept to, to uh, refrain from unskillful speech. So you've gotten like uh, kind of some time off from that in the 10 days primarily, right? But now you're going back to it. And this is one of the ones in which uh, people much more frequently have experiences of uh, areas to pay attention to, right? So some of you listening to the first one and the second one and third one are like, oh, I don't kill animals or people. Oh, I don't steal things. So this is good. And, you know, yeah, I'm pretty good with sexual energy and activity. I'm pretty ethical. <laughs> then you come to this one. Right? <laughs> so there's a lot to pay attention to. So paying attention to whether we speak truthfully. Right? And when we don't, paying attention to, well, what's the impetus for that? Like, what's making us lie? What are the areas in our life in which we avoid telling the truth, and why? Avoiding speech that's divisive, you know, that's speech that intentionally splits people apart from each other. Avoiding harsh speech, so speech that's like tongue-lashing, you know, cursing people out, causing harm like that. And then the fourth dimension of this that's kind of interesting is about what's called idle chatter. Right? So basically paying attention to when we're speaking and it's kind of unnecessary. And that's one that people often question, like, well, that seems like a high bar. Can't we just stick with the don't lie part? <laughs> Why don't we just stick with the first one? That's enough, right? You know. So there's something in all of these to pay attention to. And... Uh, Actually, coming off of a 10-day uh, silent retreat is a good place to start to attend to this. Even just in the few hours that you had there, right, you could notice, like, what's the effect of speech on your energy, your mind-body system, right? Like, how much were you able to pay attention and be present? Right? Uh, did speaking about certain things make that easier? Did speaking at certain pace make that easier? When are times in which, actually, it might be better to bring more silence into my life? Right? And then the fifth one is, I undertake the precept to refrain from intoxicating drinks and drugs which lead to carelessness. So many people might have heard the first four and think, like, yeah, that sounds really good. I would like to commit to that. And then if you don't commit to this fifth one, you know, the fifth one is where easily all of that can go out the window when you're under the influence of substances that uh, might cause you to not be as clear. So a lot of people might relate to this, of having done something that you regret later when you've been under the influence of some substance. Right? So you're not necessarily able to pay attention in the same way to what the effect is on yourself and others. A lot of people say that later that they do things that they regret, they wouldn't have done otherwise. So it's something to attend to. You know, uh, like all of these, it's not something that it's like, you must do this, you have to do this, but areas to pay attention to. Like, what's my relationship 
to substances that cause me to not be able to be as clear. How does that play out in my life? You know, does it feel like, oh, I can take some, but not, not more than that? Is that true for me? Is that actually true? Uh, is it true that I can take as much as I want and I can still be clear? Yeah. So each person has to pay attention and see, like, what is true here, right? Of course, with all of these, it also is good to get feedback from others. <laughs> so you might have ideas about this, right? And uh, other people might give you sometimes useful feedback. So I noticed that in our um, you know, encouragements of ways for you to pay attention, we put a lot of emphasis on noticing the thoughts that came up that were like, you know, I'm not worthy, really, or um, feeling bad about ourselves, or thoughts of um, uh, self-hatred, etc. So I just want to add that there are those occasional times, and some, for some people more than occasional, when the opposite thoughts arise. <laughs> so the thoughts about how great I am, <laughs> or how I do everything right, <laughs> or how... Uh, I always have something important to say, or, you know, et cetera, et cetera, right? So the mind is a trickster, and it's, pro- it's not like you're all one or the other, right? So, you know, it's, it's very possible that you have, like, some mix of those, you know, and they can come in rapid succession, too, right? Uh, of, like, oh, I'm so great. Like, I'm, I'm really perfect in this area, to, like, oh, I'm terrible. Like, I can't do anything right, right? So pay attention to both of those, you know. Both of those are, are helpful uh, thoughts to be able to see through. So if you choose to take these precepts on as a training, it can be a really interesting place to pay attention in your daily life. And you can choose to uh, take one of them for a period of time and just pay attention to how that plays out in your life. Like say for a week or for a month, I'm going to really attend to this one. Right? I'm going to really attend to non-harming or to this uh, uh, not killing. Right? And with each of them, there also are a lot of nuance to it. So there's kind of the you know, bright line kind of one, as the lawyers would say, you know, don't kill living beings, right? And then there's kind of the nuance below that, so not harming. Uh, paying attention to the ways in which, in our society, there's harming going on or killing going on, and what's my relationship to that? Right? So there's a lot of richness in all of this to pay attention to as we move into this internal and external It continues also as a part of your practice of mindfulness of the thoughts and intentions that arise in your heart, too. So, for example, with the ones that are of uh, the first two, particularly about killing or about taking something, and I mentioned it's basically like greed and hatred or cruelty coming up, right? So, for both of those, it's this interesting moment when you might be going along, like, kind of smoothly of being present, and then suddenly there arises this sense of a particular object or experience, and you can feel this sense of a separation of you and this object arise. So it's a place when there usually is a particularly strong sense of self arising in relationship to another person or experience. Because think about it, if there is no separation between yourself and another being, then there would be no need to kill them. There would be no need to have that sense of aggression. If there is no sense of separation of here's me and here's this other thing, then there would be no need for it to arise. Like, I want that. I am separated from that and I must have that. I'm going to take that. So with each of these, there's a helpful place to pay attention to this arising of self. If that is an interesting thing for you to pay attention to like when the separate sense of self arises and how that can solidify. And usually at the point at which we take action is when there is this solidity, right? There's both the solidity and there's like a lack of mindfulness in that action. So a lot of people have reported um, as they're sitting on retreat, and this is a very common experience, that um, you've had a lot of thoughts come up from the past about stuff that you did that you feel bad about. Or stuff that happened to you that someone else did to you that was hurtful. 
So seeing that this stuff comes up to me is uh, actually a positive aspect of our unfolding experience. You know? So it shows actually that uh, you know, in silence when things quiet down, right, uh, you actually feel the pain of these things. So in ways that maybe in the moment you were really like moving past it very quickly, you were not seeing it, uh, you had some moments of unmindfulness, like you glossed over these moments, right? And then they actually don't disappear. You know? Like they come back. Right? They come back in your internal experience. Even stuff that nobody caught you doing. Right? So there's things that you did and like nobody actually caught you doing it, but you caught yourself, right? So it comes up for you in your internal experience, and it's like, oh, there's, you can't really escape from that. You, know? you're, you're, you could say, oh, it's my conscience, or this or that. But actually, the sense of remorse is a positive, uh, wholesome quality. So noticing what happened, noticing how it makes you feel, right? And allowing yourself to actually feel the pain of something that you're doing in the moment or something that happened in the past. This part of this process of moving towards happiness, moving towards freedom, is actually allowing yourself to become sensitive enough to feel that. And also allowing yourself to be there more and more in more and more moments. So there's also why it's helpful to cultivate this sense of uh, presence. So that brings me to the uh, other aspect that I want to talk about, which is about uh, what is it then that we can actually take refuge in? What can we have faith in? So what do you get to take home from this retreat? So sometimes you go on a trip and then you'll bring home for your family, like our friends, some different souvenirs from that place, right? Uh, some T-shirts and uh, like maybe the little snow globes, you know, uh, right? Uh, maybe some teaspoons with the carved, the name of the place, right? So maybe you can find that here. I've not actually been to the gift shop here, so. <laughs> but what else can you actually take back? You know, what, what is it that you can share with people? Or what is it that you can actually hold on to yourself from this experience? So, of course, the answer is really nothing. <laughs> but you can actually start to take refuge in that which you know to be true. So in the beginning of this retreat, we did this, you know, taking refuge in the Buddha, take refuge in the Dhamma, take refuge in the Sangha. And for some people that might have meaning, and for some people that may have seemed like, okay, I'll just, you know, hang in there with this part of the opening evening, and then, you know. (laughs) So it's one one articulation of, uh, of faith, really. And not necessarily faith in a religious way, but about saying, where is it that we can actually find safety? Yeah. Where is it that we can find peace? So it's, it connects again to the, uh, the part I was talking about, about dukkha, you know, about this dis-ease we have and our longing to find a place that we can have refuge, our longing for something that we can put our faith in. So what is it that you can trust if everything is always changing in experience? What is it that you can trust if everything that arises, your thoughts, your emotions, etc., are not reliable? So what you can trust is in connecting to this continued process of awareness. So you can put your, your faith in that which you have learned here, that which you know to be true. So I'll give you an example from a, a retreat that I sat um, at some point, maybe like uh, 10 or 15 years ago. And I remember I was in a job uh, in which I really liked the work I was doing, but uh, the workplace was really difficult. So the boss was like a really difficult boss. Right? Uh, so some of you are probably uh, uh, resonating with this in some ways. Right? So I really liked the work, but the boss was like really uh, hard person to work for, really hard on the employees, um, you know, kind of mean, uh, but we were putting up with it for a long time. And as I sat this retreat, you know, I started to actually feel the impact of this, of being in a place like this, and having someone like this have uh, this kind of control, and I basically realized, like, this is not a good situation for me, right? Like, I need to get out of here, right? 
So that was a certain kind of psychological insight. And I could have left it at that, but then I spent a lot of the, the subsequent sittings writing my uh, resignation letter. You know. <laughs> so I was thinking up, you know, the greatest, like, you know, take this job and shove it letter, you know, <laughs> and rewriting and perfecting and, you know, in the mind, right? But I, I felt like, oh, yeah, this is really true. This thing that I felt, like, this is not good for me. That's really true. Like, you know, I can hold on to that. Uh, so then I need to plan this whole thing out. So I left the retreat and went back to the workplace. And uh, the first uh, staff meeting that they had after that, this boss announced that, that uh, she was resigning, actually. <laughs> so it turns out that you know, impermanence is not only true inside the retreat. It actually applies to everywhere. <laughs> it's not just in the confines here, right? Uh, so it, you know, it made me realize, like, I took on the strategy then of, of from this thing that arose that seemed like resonant of then feeling like, okay, then I need to control this, then I need to figure this out, right? Whereas actually, the thing to trust from that was that awareness. Like it was the awareness that allowed me to feel what was there in the moment and then what appropriate action needed to happen. So if I was able to bring that, that awareness, continue that, bring that into my uh, next situation and the next moment and the next moment, then you're able to actually meet each moment freshly. Be like, okay, well, what, what, what needs to happen now? Allow that to arise. What needs to happen now? Allow that to arise. Right? And the tendency of the mind is to want to script it all out. Right? Like we want to find safety in that. We want to create these scripts that nobody else seems to actually follow. Right? Uh, but we want to create that, and that'll be like our protection. Right? So I actually encourage you when you leave here to notice uh, you know, what were like the top five uh, thought patterns that were going on in my mind about something I was going to, conversation I was going to have or how something was going to play out and so on. And then actually particularly kind of dog ear that part of your life in your mind. When you go back there, pay attention to whether it actually happens as scripted in your mind. Because right? <laughs> if, if you notice that, you know, if, if it pr- turns out exactly how you scripted, then I'm very happy for you, right? But most of the time it doesn't. And it actually helps us to detach a little from our sense of belief in our thoughts and our sense of belief that we can control things when you notice that. So that was a big wake-up call for me because that was like, wow, that was a giant waste of time. All that time I spent writing the resignation letter. I actually stayed at that job for several more years and it was fine. So what can we put our faith in? The word for faith in, uh, in Pali uh, is actually a verb. So it's not actually faith like a thing. It's uh, a verb, and it's an action about uh, placing your heart upon. So trusting, trusting your own experience. So it's, it's usually translated as confidence, trust, faith, which are more nouns in English. But it's actually like a verb about uh, an action or a relationship. And having faith in your own experience takes a lot of courage. So it's like a participatory kind of thing. Just like being taking on the precepts is like a participatory activity. You know, it's not actually like, oh no, the Buddha's up there and he's going to judge me. Right? It's actually participatory. You take the action, you observe the results. Right? You adjust as you see fit. So bringing this sense of active attention, of openness, as we go into life, as we move from here, that's actually the thing, if you will, you can take back. And that's what is actually also a gift to all of your family and friends when you go back to your neighbors, even to the people you don't know (laughs) as you interact with them. So bringing this sense of the kindness and the clarity as best you can and being willing to see, like, what is it that's arising? So one side of this change, which we usually notice and suffer from, is that things depart, you know. So our body changes. So our houses uh, decay, you know. So all these things are like that. But the other aspect of it is that things arise all the time. Right? There's like a constant arising. Uh, and it's actually beautiful. 
and, and kind of miraculous. And if we can actually be present for that, things are actually even more amazing than our scripts are. Yeah. Like life itself is actually more incredible than what we can vision it to be, what we can think it can be. Our ideas about our life can limit you know, what we think can happen. So this quality of faith, of putting your heart in, of putting, resting in, awareness itself and your willingness to be here for whatever it is that arises. So sometimes uh, doubt, you know, as uh, Noah talked about as one of the hindrances, is considered like the opposite of faith. But I would say it's only the kind of doubt that actually makes you move away from this active openness, this active presence. But the kind of doubts that are actually like questions that you can hold about your life, about the way things are, that actually help you to stay in that process are the kinds of doubts that are helpful. So when things come up for you, actually trying to answer those with your awareness, with being present. So here's a a quote that I like from Rilke about this. Have patience with everything unresolved in your heart and try to love the questions themselves. Don't search for the answers, which could not be given to you now, because you would not be able to live them. Live the questions now. Perhaps then, someday in the future, you will gradually, without even noticing it, live your way into the answer. So hold your questions, whatever it is that is the deepest questions that drive you in your own search for happiness, for freedom. Whatever question is sincere for you and articulates for you what that is, hold that question gingerly, tenderly, and answer that through your practice. Live those questions, and you'll find that life can be even more amazing than what you expected. So uh, I'll close out with a poem also uh, from one of my, the poets who I really like. And as you try to live these questions, it also takes a lot of courage, right? Like it's hard to step out of your scripts. It's hard to step out of what you know. But really that's the truth of the way things are, is that you don't know. So this is from uh, Audre Lorde, A Litany for Survival. When the sun rises, we're afraid it might not remain. And when the sun sets, we're afraid it might not rise in the morning. When our stomachs are full, we're afraid of indigestion. When our stomachs are empty, we're afraid we may never eat again. When we're loved, we're afraid love will vanish. When we're alone, we're afraid love will never return. And when we speak, we're afraid our words will not be heard nor welcomed. But when we are silent, we are still afraid. So it's better to speak, remembering that we were never meant to survive. So I've concluded my song for you today. I encourage all of you to live your questions and find your own song. So that beautiful way in which all of us manifest uniquely in the world. And paying attention to that internally and externally and make everything your practice as you leave here. So, blessings. So please enjoy your last evening of silence here. Larry spoke about the importance of transitions. And here's a transition for you. you know. 
So trying to be as present as you can, trying to be as gentle as you can as we move through this. You can continue to give the gift of silence for yourself and also for everyone here. And continue your practice as well. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.